I'd like for you to open your Bible tonight to Matthew chapter 5. Again, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Life on God's Terms. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, is living the kind of life that God wants us to live. It's not a suggestion, and it's not a law, but there are principles that are taught here that will challenge all of us. I don't care how many times we've been taught in our lifetime in the Sermon on the Mount, how many times you've studied it or been to a class on it. I don't think there's ever a time you go over this again that you're not challenged and convicted to some degree about the kind of life that is required of us that, quite frankly, we're really not that willing to live. Now, we will because God has started a good work in us is going to complete it. But it's not easy. It wasn't intended to be easy. Jesus didn't make it easy for us. He didn't make it easy for anybody. He tells us to labor to enter into that rest or strive to enter in at the narrow gate or with difficulty the righteous shall enter in. He's telling us that this Christian life is not just something you add to your life. It becomes your life. It's the way God will hold us to live in the last day. This is the word that God watches over to perform. And it has many instructions and many things. Last week, for example, we were in verse 38, where Jesus is bringing to their attention the way they've been taught by the scribes. A lot of error and confusion in what they had been taught. The people weren't living the way they should, or they were trusting in the Old Testament methods and ways for dealing with things. And Jesus has said, well, that, that was for then, but... There's a kingdom coming in which I'll be the king, and there's a different way we live now. So he said, he begins these verses in chapter 5 where he, he deals with the Old Testament law. Like he said in verse 18, you've heard that it has been said. Verse 27, you've heard that it has been said. Verse 31, it has been said. Verse 33, again, it has been said. 34, uh, I say unto you, and then 38, you have heard that it has been said. So he's continually bringing us back to what we have been taught and what they've been taught to show them that while the law was good and perfect and holy, no man could live by that means. I haven't come to do away with that, but to give you the deeper intention that God had in what he said. This is a deeper way of living. The rest of this chapter are principles of non-resistance. Let me tell you something about non-resistance. Teaching on non-resistance today as the Christian way of life is about as popular as a pork chop at a Jewish convention or something. Because to, today is a day of violence, just like in the days of Noah. The two outstanding things in the days of Noah that caused judgment. And Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the end. The two outstanding things prior to the flood was violence and immorality. And if there's two things today that top the list in this world, and especially in our country, that people are just lusting after and wanting more of, it's violence, violent movies, Rambo, Exterminator, anything that has to do with bulky, mean guys that can handle the whole troop. And kids like that stuff. It's kind of like an imaginary world in which if I was like that, Boy, everybody would respect me. Everybody would like me. If, Boy, if I was like that, I'd be something. So a lot of kids want to act like that. I think it's aggravated by drugs, that the, the chemicals that people put in their body today, I think, have an effect upon that, aggravates it. But immorality and violence, it's a violent age. And people are harming and hurting people. And we're told it was going to be like this. I mean, perilous times are what it says, perilous times. Men's hearts in the last day will fail them because of fear. Things are coming on this earth. We can't do anything about it, and the most smartest, most inventive people in the world can't do anything about what's about to happen. 
They can't stop it. They can't modify it. They can't declare truce. It's going to happen. And judgment's coming on this whole world. While people are drinking down all their fun and pleasure in the midst of it, God's going to judge this earth. We must be willing to live a life that avoids that before Jesus comes. Uh, we have to live a certain way to escape the judgments that's coming on this world. Well, anyway, we're, we're warned. And as we read the Sermon on the Mount, again, we read it in the light of how we're supposed to be, the kind of character that the Spirit of God will form in us. Anything else is not right. It may be noble in the eyes of man. It may not be as much as Jesus said, but it's more than what most have, but it's still not right. See how narrow it gets? There is a way that seemeth right. Proverbs 16, there is a way that seemeth right. And that means that people get to pick and choose what they like, their brand and how they like it. And it's an end time thing we're talking about here. There's a way that seemeth right unto man. Because the Bible said in the latter days, in the last time, men will seek to themselves teachers having itching ears. And in the time of the great falling away, they will turn away their ears from hearing the truth and they will turn aside to fables. They will declare unto us smooth things, prophesy illusions, make us happy we came here. Make us feel good about ourselves. And they're getting that, and it's part of the end-time apostasy and delusion that people are going through. Jesus gives us a way to escape the judgment that he must, as a righteous God, he has to judge all this. If you were close but didn't want to go all the way, he has to judge. How many of you know he has to judge sin? He's fair, he's righteous, and he's holy. And he will do right. And you have a way to live, and God wants you to live that way. And if you don't want to live that way, then, well, Hebrews 12, that's not a very comfortable scripture. The book of Hebrews isn't very comfortable, but our God is a consuming fire. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Most people have only heard about him and don't know him. One day, everybody will know him. Well, they will see him. Every knee will bow one day and every tongue confess he really is God. He really, really is. And, and we have been fools. And there's a dark figure in the shadows of everybody's life that's doing their very best to make fools of us. He goes about to deceive the whole world. You think about that. That deceiveth the whole world. And we have to overcome his work against us to turn us away from these truths and give us an alternative, something else besides the Sermon on the Mount. Well, it's good if you can live that way, and I think that's great, and I think it's fine for you, but I just don't think everybody can live this. Have you heard that before? I just don't think everybody can live this. I just think that's over the head of most people, and therefore, I think that what God is saying to us is ideal. It's an ideal you should strive for, but if you can't make it, and if you don't, God knows just as long as you're trying. And so we don't have an achieving spirit. We, we're not motivated by being doers. We're just motivated by some kind of effort. We try, and that's it. This is the way walking in it. The Bible says that. So we're talking about non-resistance. And this non-resistance is for us as Christians, it's the abstention from the use of violence in achieving our goals, whether it's in the government, in the church, in your personal life or anything else. We, we are not violent people. We are not violent. We did not go about to propagate violence. We are not in the business of going out and, and harming and hurting anybody. We're not pacifists because a pacifist still opposes the government with protests and strikes and petitions and speak out against the government. We don't do that. We're just, we believe in non-resistance. And, and that's the way we're supposed to live. That's not easy. Again, in light of all this tough guy age and bad man age and cage fighting and all the stuff that people just, all the gore and the video games are all about violence. I mean, it's just amazing. You hear a kid playing a video game, I've heard a few times, and you can, you hear the, that's somebody getting shot. Or something getting shot. 
and you blow that sucker out of the wherever and without regard to where he's going. You know, he's going to hell, but he dies like that. And it's just, it's doesn't mean anything because we're into, whew, I feel good about that. Well, anyway, we're living in that age and Jesus tells us, like in verse 38 through 42 that we looked at the last time that he said, I tell you that he said, you've heard it has been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. That is the Old Testament gave you the right to retaliate or to get even or exact revenge from somebody that did you wrong. You have a right by law to do them wrong. And you just did what you had to do. Eye for eye, a tooth for tooth. We look at several of those verses last week. And the, and again, the law gave you that to do that. And people were willing to exact revenge. And they come along and Jesus said, you know, you know, you've heard that. But let me tell you something else. I say unto you. And notice the things he says. That you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Smiting on the cheek was usually a backhand blow, and it was very insulting. And it is said in the commentaries that the Romans, who were ruling the Jews at the time in occupation of the Palestine, of that land there, they were always messing with the Jews. They humiliated them. They didn't care how they felt. Similar to the days when we had slaves in this country. I mean, nobody cared if they had feelings or not. And the abuse and the language that was used to insult and harm and take their property when they were set free, the emancipation proclamated, and they, you know, they were just suffered all. I mean, people didn't care. And so there was this building up of revenge, and one day I'll get even, and no more of that. And you, know, you can see some of that has come into our society, and uh, it's not good. But Jesus is against all of that. He said, I say to you, you resist not evil. If they smack you around, then let them smack you around. You don't fight them back. He said in verse 40, If any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And your cloak in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, one of those chapters, 22 or 12, God said you can take a man's coat, but you can't take his cloak. Or That's, that's his garment next to his, that's what he sleeps in, I guess. He said, if you take it, give it back to him before sundown because God will be on his side. But he said, if they take that, give it to him. They take it law and take that, and they ask you for that, which by law they couldn't have, give it to him. You see, we're talking about a surrender of your passion and your emotions here to the will of God. Why would God ask us to let people do that to us? Why would he tell us to allow that to happen? It's the way God wants us to live. In verse 45, he said that you may be children of your Father which is in heaven. You do all of this so that you can qualify for that. This is the way he's teaching us to live. Not many people will, but a few will. But Jesus said that also. And he goes on in verse 41, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. That was a uh, law that the Romans could compel a Jew to walk 100 paces as a command, to carry his shield or whatever, and he couldn't do anything about it other except suffer the punishment or the retribution of it from the Roman soldier. And But Jesus said, if they tell you to go a mile or 100 paces, tell them you'll go another. And people would probably look and say, oh, I hate these people. I hate these Romans, and oh boy, and then you want me to give in and not only turn my cheek, but give them my cloak and then go an extra mile? Wow, there's no end to the, what they're going to do to us if, we, if we're that weak. Now, Jesus doesn't talk about weakness, but this is not about weakness at all. It's more about strength than anything else. It takes a strong man trusting God, trusting God for abuse and tomorrow and how far anybody's going to do anything to you to trust God that as I live on your terms, Lord, you're going to protect me. A wife who submits to her husband who's not saved, she she shouldn't have done that, but in the, the fact that she did, she has to trust God in submission to him that he won't take advantage of her. And he's big enough to do that. God's big enough to keep you from harm, isn't he? 
I mean, isn't he big enough to keep any evil from befalling you? Isn't he big enough to give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways? You know, every how you read this Sermon on the Mount, the application of it goes back to the message of faith. You've got to believe that as you do what God wants, God will honor you as you honor him. That God will keep you as you trust him. You've got to believe that. And like in non-resistance and not killing and fighting in a war in, in the defense of your country. Well, if everybody thought like that, we'd just be invaded all the time. I don't think so. In the days of Jehoshaphat, they weren't even guarding their borders. They were studying the Bible. And as a demand in the law of the king, King Jehoshaphat. The soldiers weren't out there where the enemy were. And the Bible said God caused them to not invade or bother them. In fact, he caused them to bring them presents and gifts. Jehoshaphat had them had herds of cattle and camels and whatever you do with a camel and all that brought to him. And he wasn't asking for it, wasn't seeking it. He was just seeking first God's kingdom and all these things were being added to him. We see a picture of that in the Old Testament, but people don't see that. But he was just seeking the kingdom. Had his whole kingdom seeking the kingdom. And the enemies around about him durst not make war with them. I think the Bible says when a man's ways, is that still in the Bible? When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. So see, we're so concerned we read this in an age in which everybody, we think everybody's trying to take advantage of everybody else and harm people and sue people and litigation and all that. But, you know, as a Christian, you have to learn, first of all, that God hasn't asked you to do something that's going to hurt you. God will take care of you. He will watch over you to keep you. He will guard your steps. He will order your steps. Nobody can do anything. He can put a hedge about you. I think there was a man in the Bible that had a hedge about him. Somebody in there. He's looking for a job, but I mean, (laughs) book of Job. Even the devil said, I can't touch him. Imagine that. Why not? Because a man lived as righteous a life as he knew how to live. And everything about him pleased God. The devil couldn't touch him until God allowed it. But even then, God said, you can't kill him. You may touch everything he's got, his body and his everything, but you can't kill him. Even that's in God's control. No man's going to take your life and slip up on you and end your life when you're walking with the Lord like that. You can confess you're walking with the Lord and be doing a lot of wrong things, and that won't work. All I'm saying is that trusting in the Lord is taking God at his word. Turn to Proverbs 3, if you will, for just a moment. This is what God says when when Jesus says, But I say unto you, I think we could use this verse as a reference of what we're to understand with the way he gives us to live. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Now, that's not easy. Not many people can do this. Not many people will do this, but it can be done. It can be that you can trust the Lord with all of your heart. And all the things your mind throws at you, oh, what would you do? What would you do? What? You're not to take thought for that stuff. Oh, what would happen if? What would, who said it's going to happen at all? Your concern is not what's going to happen if I trust God and then back away from God. Yours is to trust the Lord with all your heart. Make that decision. I cast all my cares upon you. God bought you with a price, didn't he? Didn't he pay a price for you? We saw it at the cross. You're his purchased possession. You're the whole reason Jesus died. I mean, your well-being and your security and your safety and your salvation is the whole reason that Jesus came to this earth to live perfectly and die in the way he died. It was you. There's no other reason. And when he saves you in the eyes of God, he purchased you. You're ransomed. Remember that? You were ransomed. Bought back, purchased from death, brought to him, 
planted in His courts, seated with Him in heavenly places. And there's a purpose and a reason for all of that. God has something for you that this is all about. I mean, even heaven and what's there, He said, I hasn't conceived, man hasn't even thought about what God has in store for those that love Him. I mean, that's amazing. I I wouldn't know what it is. Nobody has ever thought of it. It's never came to the most lofty moments of your time with God. It has never touched what is really there. And it's something that obviously will be marvelous. And so this is, this is what the Lord is telling us. This is what he wants us to know. That, you know, you, you trust the Lord with all of your heart. And the, the rest of that verse says, and quit leaning to your own understanding. That's why you had to get saved in the first place. Because you were figuring it all wrong. You were had it all in wrong perspective. But that's your understanding. You were trained in the world to think like that. The world has a view of religion and the way it ought to be. And it's not near what God says. But the world likes the world's way. And so God says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and quit leaning to your own understanding. You notice those other words. This is what Jesus is teaching us. This is what the, the New Testament or the Sermon on the Mount is teaching. He said, in all thy ways, acknowledge him. When you go into the video store and the stuff you pick out, acknowledge God. Me and God are going to watch this tonight. There you go. You put it back. I'm telling you what he said. Your life becomes a life that is focused on Jesus. You're still a human being. You work your 8 or 10 or 12 hours a day. You wash your dishes, change your diapers, and clean your house, and, and do what you do. But everything has to be centered around Jesus. He becomes the focus of your life. It is all because of Jesus. I sing because of Jesus. I read because of Jesus. I pray because of Jesus. It's all a part of what we call a relationship. And I believe that's what the Sermon on the Mount is telling us. You've heard that it's been said. But let me tell you what Jesus said. But I say unto you, and then he begins telling us all these things that he wants us to know. And we learn, as we read on in the New Testament, that the price you pay for living this way is not comfortable. I think Jesus said in the last verse of John 16, he said, be of good cheer. He said, in the world you're going to have tribulation. Remember that? In the world... You will have tribulation. Why? You didn't have it before Christ. Why are you having it after Christ? Not many Christians are suffering persecution anywhere, anywhere in America. Not many people are. If you're a Christian in Indonesia or in the Middle East, outside of Israel, you, you, have, to, you have to be on guard all the time because people want to destroy your life. He's telling us here that... In the world, you're going to suffer persecution. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In the world, you will have tribulation. Tribulation not only is a test of what you really believe to prove yourself, but tribulation also is evidence of the fact that you're willing to live for Christ on His terms no matter what you face. If you have to walk away from things in your life, you have to give up things in your life, things you treasure, because those things would be offensive to God, you walk away from it. It's the price you pay because of your faith. It's what I believe, and because I believe that, I'm going to do that. In fact, I want you to look at Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41. The disciples have been brought before the council and told they're not to preach in this name anymore. And they were beaten in verse 40. They were beaten. They did not protest their beating. They did not threaten the council. Listen, they said, Peter, remember Peter stood up and he said, there'll be so many people here on your doorstep in the morning, you'll wish you had never been born. We'll make more noise. We'll surround this place and we'll march. We're going to get our tents and camp here until you change. 
you know why they didn't do that then? They would have been killed for one thing. And if it was in America where you can do anything you want to, they wouldn't do it because that would be offensive to the government. And see, we're not here to be offensive to the government, to protest, to aggravate, threaten, or be mouthy toward, not even to speak the ruler of our people, of our, you know, the president. People do it all the time because they listen too much at stuff on talk shows. So they take their liberties and doing the same thing. But it said in verse 41, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus. But the government said, don't do that any, anymore. Well, he told them, I think it's in verse, what, 29. He said, we ought to obey God rather than man. There's a clash between man's world and God's world. And because of our commitment to God, if the state requires us to do something that violates our convictions then we will suffer retribution at the hands of the state without fighting back because we're Christians. We were told, we've been told beforehand that you will suffer. You will be humiliated. You will be talked about and scorned. Jesus even said that in some cases you'll die. Remember he said in the revelation to overcomers, he said, you'll have tribulation for so many days, but be thou faithful unto death. You don't like that either. Well, he just simply said that there are situations. Who knows what part of the world that will happen? It could happen right here in America. It happens in some parts of the world all the time every day where there is a detestation or a hatred of Christianity in some parts of this world that, that is hated passionately. And to stand up for Christ over there in some of those places may cost you your life. It did in the early church. Paul went about, remember the Apostle Paul? Y'all heard of him? He was on the road to Damascus with orders from the chief priest to kill and imprison Christians where he was going in, in Damascus. He was headed there. His testimony in Acts 26, Paul's testimony was, you know, I was just kind of a man. I persecuted and caused the death of many Christians. It was pretty bad. But see, they thought they were eliminating this nuisance in the community or in the, in, in the country. Get rid of these Christians. You know, people don't mind churches on any corner of America. The fact, the more churches in a city, probably there are more people like it. We're a very religious community. As long as the church doesn't get too dogmatic or too narrow. Because if you start taking God at His Word, even though on occasion you may be off a little bit or extreme, maybe you've overdone it, I don't know. But your heart is, your convictions are clean and clear with what you know, and you live in a, such a way that it just not only alarms people around you, but aggravates them. You believe in the permanency of marriage, for example, and half this country is divorced. And they just gnash their teeth at you as though you wrote it. You wrote that. That was you. That Bible says, edited by Tom Hamilton. <laughs> they can't stand it that you have taken something God said, declared it, at least the way you understand it. And, oh, or non resistance. I doubt if there's a country in the world more patriotic than America. And for any of us to, to declare what I believe is taught here, about non-resistance. Love your enemies. He said in the next section, verse 45, love your enemies in America. Love your enemies that has killed your mother or your dad or your uncle, your brother, somebody overseas, somebody loved one. That doesn't make any sense. No, sir, my country calls me to go into battle. I'm going to battle. I'll kill every one of them. Well, be careful that your motive is not murder. Because while there was a lot of killing in the Old Testament, Jesus said, Thou shalt not murder. It's not vengeance. You're exacting. We'll get into that in just a minute. Maybe not that exactly, but about wars, just wars, and the Christian's relationship to all of that. But remember another thing that I didn't get to last week. In verse uh, 42, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. And so what do we do with that? 
Does that mean that anybody that wants anything from you, you have to give it to them? Does it mean that any time you hit on the cheek, you have to turn the other cheek? When they smote Jesus at before the, uh, the rulers, before his crucifixion, he said, why did you do that? Paul said the same thing in Acts 23. So what does it mean here when it says, Jesus said, but I say to you, give to him that asketh of thee. What if your teenage son was sitting here tonight, not exactly saved, but, you know, comfortable, in a nice warm atmosphere, and he hears this being taught, and he says, oh, yeah, give to him that asks. So as soon as they get outside after church, say, hey, Dad, I'd like to have 20 bucks. And Dad looks at him and says, in your dreams. He said, no, didn't you hear what the preacher said? He said, give to them that ask. Well, do you have to give that boy $20? Well, now, what do you believe? You, you can't just say, uh, uh, you've got to make a decision here about that. It said give, didn't it? It did. If you can't read it, I'll tell you what it said. It said give. That's what he said. What if a, a cult was selling flowers in the airport and here's some little girl selling flowers for a dollar? I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Give me a dollar. Would you give it to her to promote their cause? Would you be part of the crew to help build a kingdom hall for the Jehovah's Witnesses or a Mormon temple somewhere? Would you be a part of that? What, you, what do you believe? You're a Christian. You're seeking a kingdom that is not of this world, that is alien to this world, despised by this world, and not fit for most everybody in this world. Most everybody. There'll be a few. Isn't there a few? The world's not loaded with people getting ready to go. I hear somebody on one of these uh, modern churches today talking about, you know, there's three million people getting saved every day. Wow. Saved is a big word to me. See, I have, a, I have a pretty narrow definition of saved. Saved for most people means going to church. But I think of saved as being a Christian, living for Christ, being a disciple, a learner, a follower of Christ. Not everybody. I have met everybody I've ever met with one of them. They can be, so you work at that. Three million a day is a lot of people. But I don't know that there's three million a day. But if there is, praise God, isn't that... Wonderful. But would you give to an atheist group some, somewhere if they wanted you to contribute to their cause? And they said, please, uh, please give to us. What if you were walking down the street? I've had this happen two or three times in my life. And a wino comes up, staggering up to you. And not only does he smell of wine, of wine but also of the bathroom. Hey, buddy, could you spare me a quarter for a bowl of soup? Well, you don't eat any soup. It isn't soup he's after. He wants to go get some more of that wine. I remember a place on Shelby Street one time in Louisville. One of them stopped. I was with somebody. And I said, do you realize, look at him on the car. I said, do you realize the devil's made a fool out of you? I remember he, he kind of drew back. What? He had a buzz. I mean, he was kind of, what? I said, the devil's made a fool out of you. Look at you. What's wrong with you? You know, and started talking. So I started talking about Jesus. I said, I'm talking about what Jesus could have done in your life and how he could have changed you. I'm talking about how he could turn your life around and made it count for somebody. I'm talking about Jesus, fella, friend, whatever he was. Then I gave him 50 cents. Only because he let me preach to him. He stood there for a little, a little while and he quit talking, just quit talking going... I told him, I think I said it like this. It might have been a dollar. That was a bunch of it was a dollar. I said, I'm going to give you this in Jesus' name. And I forbid you to buy any alcohol with this. Well, he didn't know. I think he took it. Would you give money to somebody that come up and say, Hey, buddy, I need a dollar for this or a dollar. Would you just give it to them? They ask you, they ask you for it. Would you promote that? Would you give to somebody who, who wasn't in trying in this life to make a living? 
laying on a soft pillow somewhere. You come by and say, hey, give me some money, brother. You got plenty? You got plenty? Yeah, I got up every morning and worked hard to get it. I know, well, give some to me. Well, I'm, I'm a socialist. You, you, you know, you, you give me some of that. It ain't right for you to have all that money. Give me something. <laughs> but anyway, would you? What did he mean? What did Jesus mean when he says, give to him that asketh of you? Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 30, he says, give to every man that asketh of thee and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. I believe there are situations, especially political situations, it could be other things, in which you'll be put to the test here. You'll be put to the test, and, they, and you will be abused and mistreated and taken advantage of. When it comes to your family, your private personal life, in the confines of the church or your family, and somebody in your family, one of your kids, as I said earlier, came up and said, Hey, I like that message tonight. I need 20 bucks for the weekend. I'd say, You're not getting $20 from me. You can go out there and can't mow much grass. You can rake a lot of leaves. You can work for about uh, five hours. I'll give you $20. Oh, no, man. Well, then do without. Five hours, yeah, five hours. Would you give somebody anything just because they ask you? Or do you think that there could be more to this than just a legal give to whoever asks you anything? I think you have to give an account for what you do with your money. But I also believe that you'll be tempted on occasion or tested on, a, on occasion when things come up and you'll have to let, to let go of it. Let me tell you something. God doesn't give you everything you ask for. Turn to James 4 for just a moment. I've been waiting all day for this one. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I mean, I know you know this one. We'll come back to Matthew shortly here, but James chapter 4 and verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you have not because you ask not. You're looking every way to get something except God. And you ask and you receive not. Well, what good was it to ask if you received not? Well, it all conditions on why you're asking for it. Lord, help me win the lottery. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus. I'm going to fast and pray for three days. Help me win this $42 million lottery. Well, let me see what he says, and you can answer this. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust. If somebody said, I want to win $42 million, is there any lust involved here with somebody that's trying real hard to win $42 million? I'm going to give it all away, Right. Right. Jesus knows why we ask. We've been taught this before. Jesus knows our intention and our reason for seeking his kingdom or praying real hard or wanting something bad. He knows. And sometimes we pray for things that, you know, like to get even. Lord, I pray you make this judge this morning in this case that I've sued this person here that's done me wrong. I pray that you'll make them just give me my judgment. You really think it's going to work in light of what he said? If they take you to court for one thing, give them the other also. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, There is utterly a fault among you. You're going to court with each other. Is there anybody in your church spiritual enough to judge in your situation? Well, not this hour, in this day and age. Nobody has a real problem with somebody else in the church. Is going to let the church decide what's right or wrong. But that's what the Bible teaches. You ever heard of it being done? I haven't either. But that's the way the Bible says to do it. We're a body. We're connected by one source. And from that source, we're all connected with each other, obligated to that source to love each other the way the source has loved us. And what he has done for us, we're willing to do for each other. And yet, at the first time of some sort of a personal offense, we just go the other way. Now, I don't know why run over me. 
Verse 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God, and whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. No wonder you're fighting and biting and devouring and harming and hurting and slandering and gossiping and talking ill with each other and doing each other wrong and rejection and, and putting down and lack of love and compassion. It's, you're part of the world. That's what the world does to us. That's the way the world trains us. That's why in a church, in order today to have a church, you've got to have government. You know this is true. You've got to have a government. You've got to have the IRS backing you. You've got to ask for the government's assistance. You've got to turn to the world in order to get a break. And then you have to have a constitution. You have to have bylaws. You've got to have, just like our government has checks and balances, they have checks and balances in the church for one reason. We don't trust each other. We don't trust each other. How many churches in the world, I'm not saying that this is necessarily right. I'm convinced it is, but that doesn't mean everybody else is. How many churches in the world would let one man be the boss and pick who he wants to be his advisors? Never, ever had a financial account or uh, reckoning. You get robbed every week and you're, all your money is just being taken advantage of by one man all the time. Where else in the world? <laughs> Laugh. Because <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> Where else in all of Christendom can you find such a thing? People don't trust each other. Let me say this again. This is not even part of what I want to say tonight. Friendship with the world implies the adjustment to the world. When the ways of the world become the ways of the church, the church will corrupt itself and self-destruct. It will. You tell me why that most churches in America are dying, country churches are dying quickly because there's no kids in there anymore, no young people. Why is that? Is it because God isn't honoring it or blessing it? We got more young people here than, than we got older people. You say, how many of you here are 30 and under, but you've gained a few years since then, so we can now say, how many of you are 35 and under? Well, that's most of you. And it's not because of some old preacher. I know that. Why is it in your heart to want to come or be a part of something? Why are you here consistently if you're here? Why? Why do you come? Why do you listen? Why do you have conviction? But it's not God honoring it and blessing it. We've chosen to do everything so different than everybody else that we're viewed differently. We could have floated alone and had a nice, fine building. We've been a church for 30 years that we could have probably gotten a, a loan for two or $3,000 and built us a nice place. But that would not have been the way for us with our convictions to do it. So we have chosen to just let God bring that to pass when he wants it to come to pass. And in the meantime, we'll meet whatever we can meet. If we can get there, we'll clean it up, take care of it. And maybe someday somebody will build us a building. We'll just pay them to let us live in it and worship God in it. And when Jesus comes, they can have it all back. Listen to me. I'm preaching now, but there is a reason that a group of people are truly blessed. Not perfect. It's not because we're above, better, anybody than anybody. We're not. But there's a reason when you're trying to do it God's way, whether it's your personal life has shown up in the, in the peace and joy in your life tonight, when you're trying to live the way God shows you, even though you're struggling, or when a church tries to come together with all the problems that we may have with you, when we're trying to do it God's way, willing to trust God that we won't be hurt doing it this way, nobody's going to take advantage of us, God blesses it. He really does. We don't have board meetings with people getting mad and church splitting and people leaving. In fact, we've never had a board meeting. We've never had one congregational vote yet, have we? 
Unless we get proud about that, let's get away from that and go on, okay? Now, what about the Christian and the state? About non-resistance? What is our relationship to the state? Now, we're Christians. We live in America, us. Turn to Romans chapter 13. Let me ask you the question. Can a Christian appeal to the state to get a need met or something under control or something fixed? Can we appeal to the state for anything? In other words, can we go to the police station for help? Could we? Can a Christian, would a Christian ever call 911? If you saw somebody breaking in your neighbor's house, would you say, I bind him in the name of Jesus? I command them to get back in their car and drive off. We all know that could happen. We also all know that we're not sure if we all know we can do that effectively. So... Is it possible to pick up the phone and say, there's a robbery taking place at such and such a place and you need to get the police out here? Well, you're a big believer. Why are you calling the police? Well, because God ordained government. The state exists. The state meaning the government and the system that the society is run by. The state is here because of God. Did not Paul in Acts 25 appeal to Caesar? They could have let him go if he hadn't have done that. He said, I appeal to Caesar. Why would he appeal to Caesar? Why wouldn't he appeal to God? Well, there are just some things the Bible doesn't explain. We just read it and then we have to examine ourselves. What would you have done? Could Paul have said in the name of Jesus, I declare that God is going to get me loose from these chains and you're going to be convinced God's going to do whatever he has to do with you and I'm going to be out of here. I mean, could you pray that prayer if you knew that was God's will? If you did not know that was God's will, if that wasn't in your heart, you could still pray it wouldn't work. Because faith is always a matter of the heart. When the heart is in tune with God, there is a peace and a certainty. Or as it said in Romans 4, a persuasion that it'll work. When you're trying to get something to work because you're not sure God wants to do this or how he wants to do it, then you're in turmoil. To a, to a degree, but when you have peace, you cast your care over on the Lord, you ask, and it shall be given to you. Because God can do all of that too. But in the meantime, what about the state? What is our relationship to the government? Romans chapter 13, we'll go to 1 Peter 2 right after this, because I don't want to stay here too long. But Romans chapter 13, and beginning in the first verse. Let every soul, now this is written to Christians. He said, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. What does that mean? Powers, meaning authorities. The word powers is talking about authorities. The sheriff, the, the governor, the police, the magistrate, the courts. The, the laws that govern our society, you've got to have laws. If you didn't have laws that govern society, you'd have chaos. See, Jesus refers us to the, to the state, but he also, in the Sermon on the Mount, is teaching us about personal things. Like, somebody offends you, stole something from you, you can forgive them, right? If they won't give it back, you give it to them. I've had bikes stolen from my kids, and we just prayed that God would give it back, that they could keep it. If they bring it back, we said, it's yours. We gave it to you. We had some people break in here once and steal your all stuff, and I just gave it to them. <laughs> all these things were stuff. <laughs> I gave away your stuff. <clears throat> they found some of it, and they said, you want to go get it? And I said, no. No, if they took it like that, God allowed that, they can have it. We'll get some more. And we got better in Romans 13 and verse, and verse 1. Let me get back to that. He said, let every soul be subject to the higher powers because there is no power except to be of God. The government was established by God. Every government. And listen, no government is righteous. The only right government that was ever in the world was Israel under a theocracy. Israel under God. And they didn't like that because they couldn't see. 
They wanted to be like other people. They wanted little laws and rules, and they wanted a king. So God gave them a king. That was the beginning of their decline. They weren't happy with the invisible God and the law that he gave and the way that he could operate that law without you having to see him. He could make things happen. But he said, Let every soul be subject to higher powers, for the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever, including us, therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive in themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power, the government, like the police, would do what is good, and you'll have praise of the same. You don't have to be afraid of the police. He's sitting on a highway there. He's got a job to do to, to catch lawbreakers. You don't break the law, he'll wave at you. Hi, how you doing? Have a good day. You go too fast and something in his car go ding or whatever they do in there to make him take off. He comes after you because that's what he's for. He's after lawbreakers. You're a lawbreaker. You just broke the law and he's there by the decree and the act of God to punish you because that's how you have order in society. You can forgive a thief, but when a thief is caught by the state and he comes into the courtroom, the judge doesn't say, well, look, you said you're sorry. We forgive you. Go your way. No, because there's a punishment that goes with it. There's been a time or two it has been a little tricky and a little bit difficult, but people were put out of church for behavioral problems, and they come in the office, and they cry, and they wept, and they say, I'm sorry. Well, you have to forgive people. That doesn't mean that there's no punishment. I mean, because if you have a law that has no punishment to it, and all you have to say is, I'm sorry, and it's over, then you're going to have chaos before long. We'll say, well, we can rob whatever bank we want to. All we got to do is go in there and tell him we're sorry. I'm sorry, so sorry. And then you can go do it again. But if you know when you go in there, he'll, he'll forgive you. Okay, the, you know, the law will forgive you, but we're going to exact punishment. Well, that's the difference between the state and you. You forgive your brother, and what he's taken is his. Unless he wants to pay it back and you get together about that. But the law, the state has to punish whoever these evildoers and lawbreakers are. And so he said in verse 4, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a messenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. That's what this law of this land is for to regulate and control crime and violence and harm to citizens. We have an army to defend our, our country from all evil, whether it's inside the country or outside the country. God set it up like this. I'm not against war. I may not participate in it, but I'm not against it because that's the way God regulates in the world one country from just overwhelming other countries. Again, no country in the world is Christian including the one you live in. It's too easy to explain that. But no country is Christian. America has a Christian flavor. It speaks of its constitution and the founding fathers as being dedicated Christians. Most of them weren't, but they were moral men. And they knew the Bible was, if anything else, it was moral. It was to be listened to, and they respected it, and they heeded it. They laid hands on the Bible. They started this country like that, to swear unto God. Laying hands on the Bible. I mean, these were the men who formed our country were like that. But you'd have a hard time today convincing a Christian that the United States is a Christian nation. I mean, how many people in this country believe God? You read some of these surveys that are taken about what Christians believe. And sometimes it gets down to very low double digits on who really believes what God says, even heaven or hell. A lot of people don't even believe in hell. How could a righteous God have such a place as hell? Some today say, well, if God is all he says is, why is there so much crime and, and death and squalor and terrible things happening in the world? They never stop to think that man lives by choices. God gave us a right to exercise our will. And without Christ, you always exercise it wrong. And out of wrong comes death and 
thievery and lying and cheating and stealing, everything that God has to judge. So he gave us the law to show us this is what a man is, is like when he, when he sins. The law says, thou shalt not, and man does it. And he says, you know what, I'm a sinner. I'm a lawbreaker. But he wouldn't have known he was a lawbreaker unless, as Paul wrote, he had the law. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, Christian. Love the brotherhood. That's us. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants. Serve and so on and so forth. This is the way it works. We have laws in our country, and it tells us that we're to submit to the government, and we're to do what it says. That's the ordinance of God. Now, what happens when the government's decree would have you violate your conviction? What the government says, everybody must have health insurance. And you say, I already do have. And they don't think you're funny at all when, when they say, well... What is it? Who's your policy with? The ORC plan, the old rugged cross, Psalm 91, which has all these provisions that the Almighty God has stated in His Word that are promises to me that I can claim. Therefore, I do not need anything else besides this. They might say, you know what? If you don't take this, we're either going to garnish you your wages. I don't know how they do that. I don't know how they would do that. All you had to do is quit putting money in the box and they got nothing to get. Well, anyway, that's another story. Maybe, hopefully, we don't have to deal with that. Then you're going to jail. If you don't do this and you're going to jail, then that's the price I'm willing to pay for my faith. I wouldn't be the first person in history that had to suffer for his faith. Are you willing to do that? Well, anyway, I, I just thought I'd throw that out. I figured you all would appreciate that and like that. What if the government said that the private ownership of guns is now, you know, the international community, the world community wants to impose upon the United States the elimination of the private ownership of firearms. Some Christians have more than one gun. They might have three or four. You grow up in the country, you might have a half a dozen of them. They're not needs, they're just pleasures, I guess. And the government says you've got to give up your gun. One of them is a pretty ancient old browning and here's another one over here, an old Winchester rifle, and they have value. And the government says that next, beginning of next month, everybody that hasn't turned in their firearms, we're coming to get them. And the government passes a law that makes you a criminal right off the bat. You've never done anything wrong, never hurt anybody, never violated laws ever in your life. So a law is passed. You can no longer own the gun that your grandfather had, and it passed down to you. you got to turn it in. Would you? Would you turn in your gun? What if you had three or four, five or six, seven? Would you turn it in? Or would you do as one guy said, I'm, I'm putting cosmoline on all the mine. That's the preservative put on the packing guns to store for years and forever. And I'm putting mine in a plastic bag and bury them out in the backyard. You can do that. and Nobody keep you from it. But you're a criminal. Would you turn in your gun? Would you give all of them up? What would you do? The, the laws that be. And if you did not turn it in, if you held it back, why would you? What would be your excuse? What would be your statement of resistance? Because there would be times I'd resist the government. If they told me I had to do this and I said I can't do that, quit preaching in the name of Jesus, I can't stop that. Well, we're going to put you in jail, then put me in jail. You mean you'd go to I'd do whatever I had to do to honor God? So if it cost me that, what if it cost you your head? One of them things that go, shoom, like that there, and you'd, like you used to do tomatoes that fall in half. What if it was your head that fell in half? Would you do that? Would you give up your life for the sake of being right with God? 
Are we talking about the Sermon on the Mount or is it just Hamilton's ideas about it? You have to find out for yourself, don't you? Well, anyway, he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, you should submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. But if man asks you to do something that you cannot do, sign a petition, protest. The church is going to get together and march on Washington to demand the end of abortion, a noble thing. Would you join them? What if your friend said, if you don't join us, we're not going to fellowship with you anymore. Would you do it then? I don't know how many different ways we can be tested. I don't know what, what can be done. But let me ask you a question. Can a Christian defend himself? Does a Christian have a right to ever defend himself or engage in physical restraint? I mean, do we ever have a right to do that? What if you saw a woman being attacked and attempted rape? Would you try to stop? Would you try to say something? What if it was your neighbor's daughter or wife? Would you engage then in some kind of a restraint? Would you grab maybe around the neck and hold them down while you're trying to get 911 on there? Do you have a right to exercise? Is that violence to do that? To wrestle with somebody? Is there ever a time you might do that? What if somebody that had a lot of chemicals in his body his eyes were all glazed, and he's half nuts, broke into your house while you're sitting there. The lights were on. He just broke in and had a big butcher knife. Are you going to go like this? Well, the Bible says resist not evil, didn't it? This is certainly evil. Years ago, before we came to this place, I was in the old Clay Street Church one night. You know, these are some things you never forget. And somebody whammed the women's bathroom. My office was here and around the corner was the women's bathroom. And I thought, what in the world? And all of a sudden, the whole window, the whole frame went out. Wham! And just knocked the whole window out. 11 o'clock at night. I've got some quick thinking. Now, okay. This is how fast you... I've been telling it slow, but it... it goes in your mouth again. All right, now, what are you going to do? Maybe when he comes in the window, maybe you ought to size him up and see if you could whip him or not. <laughs> if you think you could whip him, get behind his door. When he comes around that door, you bow right in his jaw as hard as you can. Or just walk out of your office, leave the door open, and walk out the side door and go downtown. Well, he might take everything in there. He wouldn't get much. And he didn't. So I'm sitting there thinking, I think I'm going to leave the building. I just walked out. And I just barely saw him go by. He didn't even see me walking out. I'm in there, there at the street door, you know, looking in that little door. And he walks by. Crazy. Nobody you could reason with. I went downtown. I'm walking on the street. I'm street walking now. I'm up here on this corner trying to fly. And here comes a cop. I said, come here, man. I said, somebody just broke in my building down there. So we drove down there. He pulls his Glock out. And I'm thinking, oh, don't kill somebody. We got me. We got church in the morning. We don't need somebody, somebody shot down here in the basement. He said, you stay outside. I said, oh, brother, blood of Jesus. And there's nobody in there. And so he came in. They called back up. Here came police cars. And, oh, man, I thought, I'm going home. <laughs> they asked me to describe the guy, and I did it the best I could remember. Some guy said, I know where he is. So they, in five minutes, they had him back in my office. And he had a gun in his back pocket. Now, then that had been good. Our preacher was bold, buddy. <laughs> he took one right in the heart and said, <laughs> it went down like... I'm not saying there's not a time you wouldn't resist. What if he'd come to the door while you're sitting there and drew that gun? Well, you're about, the only, about the only thing you could do then is use your spiritual, the blood of Jesus against you. The blood of Jesus against you. I remember a man I knew once had a vision. 
in the last days of being in a firing squad, tying him to a post. Last days, they were killing any Christian they could find. They were killing all the Christians. And they said, you have anything to say before you die? And he said, I do. He said, your guns won't fire in Jesus' name. Click, 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 click. None of the guns fired. He was instantly translated to another part of the world where there was a Christian service and he was in another meeting. See, I hope something like that is true. Maybe somebody would call that a greater work. I don't know. But I hope things like that do happen. I think that would be wonderful. Except the first part. When they're getting ready to put that sack on your head and say, you got anything to say before you die? And you think, I'm counting on that vision that God had a long time ago. We don't know when the end comes. We don't know what the government's going to do. We don't know what's going to happen in the political world. We don't know. It'll begin financially. Then it'll corrupt from then on. And it started. it's already started. I told you that years ago. It's going to corrupt financially. And it is. But we're in this world. And we're going to be attacked. And things are going to be said about us. A lot of Christians don't know if they can defend themselves at all. If an intruder breaks in your home, must you let them hurt you? Would you let a, somebody come into your house and just beat your wife to death while you watched? Or would you try to stop it? Or would a wife let somebody beat their, her husband to death? Or would she try to stop it? Or if you could get something of sizable, some kind of a stick. If by the use of that stick, one well-placed blow would, would subdue the attacker till you could call somebody, would you do that? Would you use violence that way in order to keep yourself from dying prematurely? Or maybe you would just come to the place where you're spiritually mature enough. You could just say the blood of Jesus against you. I command you to get out of here in Jesus' name. I remember a girl one time said an attacker was going to try and rape her. And she said, I resist you in the name of Jesus. You get out of here. And he did. Left her alone, walked away. Probably didn't know why he was doing it. That's another sermon. We have authority on this earth. We don't use it like we could. But there's more things, more good things to come. Amen. God is faithful. Well, close your Bibles. We'll finish this next week. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you.